I'm actually reading John 3, um, 1 through 16. So you probably don't have that all memorized, right? <laughs> um, so please stand in honor of God's word. Thank you. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and let, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Oh my goodness. Hi, Gubitzes. Welcome back. Good to see you. Merry Christmas, everybody. John 3.16, when you've preached like 15 Christmas messages, which I have at this point. Oh, we're getting a lot of kick there. Let me get that away from my mouth. Um, you kind of run out of things to say, so I thought we'd go back to the very basics and uh, go with John 3.16. Um, been looking forward to this is the closest thing to our Christmas Sunday that we have. It feels Christmas still feels a little ways off, but this is our Christmas message. Of course, we have Christmas Eve coming up. But great to be here. Great to celebrate the birth of our Savior together. With John 3.16, uh, there you have it. Um, right? Many people's first encounter with this verse. Uh, we see it on billboards. We see it at football games. Um, it is a cliche in, in one sense. For those of us who grew up in the church, some of us, this is the first verse we memorized. And we had to memorize a weird word like only begotten, which we didn't know what that meant, but we memorized it anyways. Um, but what I love about this verse is uh, it works at the simplest of levels. I mean, it really, it's such a basic presentation of the gospel and of the Christmas story. And it's a really good presentation of the gospel. Things sometimes are cliche for a good reason. And what's beautiful is it works at the simplest level, but it also is so deep and rich. 
And as you hear it, especially in its context, most of us, you know, have this memorized, but we forget even where it comes from. And as you hear it in its context, that, I think, increases the depth and the, the understanding of what, what Jesus is trying to say here. So I thought we could uh, walk through this simple uh, verse today and see it a little bit in its context and, and just connect it with Christmas and, um, and celebrate the birth of our Savior together. And so what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to break the, the verse into four phrases and with each phrase, I'm going to have an image from a guy, a guy in the 1800s named Gustave Doré. He wrote these series of sketchings uh, of biblical scenes. So I'm going to give you an image to go with, with each one. So um, let's just jump in. Phrase number one, for God so loved the world. And this reminds us that, that before Christmas is the story of Jesus, God's son, it is first a story of God the Father. And his big, wide, open love. Wow, is that me? Sorry about that, guys. Um, you know what I'm going to do? Oh, we're back. All right. If that happens again, I'm going to swap over to the, the other mic. I think we have a little broken thing going on here. So I don't mean I'm broken, though I am broken. I mean <laughs> this thing right here. All right. We'll see how it goes. I'll swap over if we need to. Um, so it is the story of God and his, his love for the world. And what, what's interesting, I think, is that phrase, world, I mean, that could just mean the globe, and there it happens again. I'm going to swap over. All right. There I am. All right. Thank you. Um, so when we hear that word world, right, it's, it's easy to just think, okay, we're talking... The earth, the globe, humanity, right? And that is true. That word means that. But what's interesting is if you trace the word world in John's gospel, it often has a distinctly negative connotation, okay? It's kind of like how we would, when, you, when we use the word worldly, oh, that person's really worldly, that's kind of what world connotes in John's gospel. It's, it's the world system organized independently of God and often even in opposition to God. That's what that word means in John's gospel. So here's the first image. This is the world in Doré's time. This is mid-1800s in London, okay? Um, his world. But let me just read you some verses that talk about the world in John's gospel. Chapter 1, he was in the world and the world didn't even recognize him. The world didn't recognize its creator. In our, just in verse 19 of chapter 3, light has come into the world and people loved darkness more than light. Chapter 7, Jesus says this, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Chapter 14, Jesus calls the prince of this world is Satan himself. Finally, in chapter 15, to his disciples, he says, the world is going to hate you just as it hated me. So by world, we're talking about the broken, sinful, corrupted, polluted, rebellious world. And in John's day, that would, be, that would take two forms. That would take the secular world of pagan Roman society and the licentiousness, the idolatry that was just part of like pagan society. But that would also take the form of the religious world of the day, the religious elites even in Jesus' time, right? These, these men, the Pharisees, who on the outside looked really pious, but in the inside their hearts were corrupted by greed and power and self-righteousness, okay? Secular world, religious world, all broken. And so my point being that 
to me, it's remarkable that it's precisely that world, that broken, corrupted, sinful, rebellious world, it's that world that is the object of God's love. God loved that world, okay? And the word love, many of us know, is the Greek word agape. It's not just a sentiment or a feeling, but it is a, a committed, steadfast, loyal, sacrificial love, as we'll see in just a second. So God has this wide heart for this very broken world. And I just think, before we move to the next phrase, that's really good to stop and consider in this season, okay? God's love for the world. Because I think, you know, Mark mentioned this, but I think many of us, at least in the last year or so, we've, we've felt the brokenness of the world like maybe we haven't before. We've felt the idolatry in the world, the hubris of the world, the thirst for power, the, the, um, the anger, you know, you, you name it, we've felt that. And maybe we've felt that in the church as well. we felt the brokenness of the church too. So what a great reminder for us because it's really tempting in this season to sit in judgment on the world that we live in right now, right? That's our, I think that's the temptation. More than ever, I want to, I'm sitting in judgment on this world, and we want to remember, yeah, but it's that world that remains the object of God's passionate pursuit, his affection, his love, his desire to rescue and save. And so what a great prayer for us in this season, just to say, Lord, I want to have your heart for this world, right? Break my heart the way your heart breaks for this very imperfect world. But we want to have God's eyes for this place. We want to have God's heart for this place, which of course includes us, right? So before it's a story of Jesus the Son, Christmas is the story of God the Father and his big love for this very broken world. All right, phrase number two, God so loved the world, you know it, that he gave his one and only son. And if the first phrase gives us kind of a window into God's love, of course, the second phrase really opens wide the doors and tells us just the extravagance of God's love for the world by the extravagance of his gift. And this really gets at the very heart of the Christmas message. We all know it very well. But here it is, right? God gave his one and only son. And that phrase, one and only, of course, is, is meant to communicate the utter uniqueness, the one-of-a-kindness of Jesus in his Father's heart, in his Father's mind. God the Father, in the beginning, made a, a universe, right? And it was beautiful. It was good. He made creatures. He made human beings, made in his image. He looks at it all, and he sees that it's good. He made so many creatures, right? But God only has one son, lots of creatures, but God has one and only, uh, one and only son. And that one and only son, I promise you, is the apple of his eye. It is, it is the treasure of his heart. He, he is his pride and joy, we might say. Uh, in John 1, John tells us that actually from all eternity, God has had a one and only son. That his one and only son didn't come into existence 2,000 years ago, but from all eternity in the mystery of the Trinity, God, the being of God, has been a fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in John 1, it says that Jesus, the word in the beginning, was with God, and he was God. 
So God's son somehow was, was God, but he was also with, and that word with literally means towards, meaning for all eternity, there was this face-to-face relationship, encounter between the father and the son, that at the very heart of all reality, there is this relationship between father and son that goes back through all eternity. This relationship of delight, of joy, of intimacy, and affection, okay? And what happens is 2,000 years ago, God sends his eternal son into the world to be one of us. And what's so great is when Jesus comes into the world, what, what we learn in John's gospel is he is the spitting image of his dad. Like he, he bears the family resemblance perfectly. He's an exact representation of his father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen my dad. We know that we see kids like, oh my gosh, that is a spitting image of their father. And Jesus is the spitting image of his dad. And he is, his, he is the source of his father's joy and delight and, and pleasure. He is his father's greatest treasure. And God gave him to us. This is the gospel. Right? He loved us in this way so much that he gave his only son. And as a father of three daughters, um, I can't imagine giving my children <laughs> away in this way, let alone to, I mean, even to a, someone, a good person, but let alone to a, a broken, sinful, rebellious world. And yet this is what God the Father does. One and only that also reflects the story of Abraham and Isaac. You guys, many of you know that story where God called Abraham to give his only son, Isaac. And Isaac was, you know, brought to the mountain to be sacrificed, and then God spared him. Um, but the gospel is that God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. It is the greatest gift God the Father could give. And it's a massive sacrifice for him, but that's what love does. Love gives, right? Love doesn't hold love, doesn't keep love, gives and pours out. And this is what Christmas is all about, is the extravagant gift of God's Son from God the Father. I know this is all old hat for most of us, but what a great thing to think about in this season, the gift of Jesus. And, you know, many of us in the next week, we still have some shopping to do, I imagine. We're still going to be buying some gifts. In a week, we're going to be giving gifts and opening gifts. And I want to encourage you that in this season, what if, if every gift opened, given, received could give us just a little glimpse into this most extravagant gift? My understanding is gift giving um, came from, historically came from the gift of the, the wise men, right? That they gave gifts to Jesus, so that's why we could give gifts. Um, but here's the ultimate gift right here. And so what would it look like for you? This, this you know, on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, when gifts are opened, okay, whether you're receiving them or whether you're giving them, what if every gift this season was to you just an echo, just a reminder of the extravagance of this gift? All this gift giving we do, what if it was out of the overflow of this, this profound gratitude for the son who was given to us? And so whether you get the gift you wanted or you don't, whether your kids are stoked about what you gave them or not, what if that was just overflow, right? Echoes of, of this, just the extravagance of the generosity of God that we live in. God gave his one and only son. All right, next phrase. So that whoever believes in him will not perish. 
And I'm going to focus on the second half of that phrase. Um, the first two phrases we looked at kind of talk about the extravagance of God's love. Uh, this phrase captures the gravity of the situation apart from the gift. And it's captured in that last word there, perish. And to understand that word, we need to understand the context of John 3.16. And I was saying at the beginning, I'll bet almost everyone in this, in this room has John 3.16 memorized, or many of us do. But if I were to ask you, what comes right before John 3.16? I'll bet a lot of us would have no clue, okay? And here's what comes right before John 3.16 is John 3.15 and John 3.14. You could have got that part of it right. Let me read it to you. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, what the heck is he talking about? So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Okay? Most famous verse of all, stuck right next to this very obscure Old Testament story. Here's the story. You guys remember it? Numbers 21. I know you're reading that this morning. Um, obscure, but really, actually, really important story. And this is um, the journey of Israel in the wilderness. That's Moses, the key figure there. And Israel had been wandering in the wilderness now for almost 40 years. And the wilderness had been a time of testing and a time of grumbling and complaining, a time of disobedience, a time of lack of faith for the most part on the Israelites. And um, in this scene, the, the people as a group, once again, they, they complain, they cry out again against God. And Moses, why have you brought us into the wilderness? We're going to die again. What, what's going on? God doesn't love us. He's not going to protect us. And so what God does is he sends venomous snakes into the camp, okay? And people start getting bit by these snakes. And uh, the venom in, is in them, and they start dying. People start perishing, to use the John 3.16 language, okay? And the situation is, is dire, it's, right? It's, it's grave, and so the people then, they, they finally, they repent, and they say, we, we were wrong to do that. We shouldn't have complained. Moses, do something. Help us, because we're dying. We're perishing. And so Moses goes to God, and God tells Moses to do something that I think is very bizarre. Okay? He says, here, I want you to take a, a, make a bronze snake, and I want you to put it up on a pole, and I want you to raise it up, and I want you to walk through the camp with this snake so that anyone who's been bit, who's perishing, who's, right, who's poisoned, is dying, can look to this snake on the pole in faith, and they'll be healed, and they'll live. Okay? What a strange thing to do. Why not just remove the snakes, right? I mean, there's a lot of ways to solve that problem, but God chooses to solve it in a very, I think, bizarre way. But here's, it seems what he's doing. He's taking the very thing that's killing them, <laughs> snakes, right? And he's saying, I want you to make another one of those, the very thing that's killing the people, put it on a pole, and if people look to this snake, somehow that's going to cure them and solve the problem that has been caused by these other snakes. Right? The very thing that's killing you, a snake, is going to be the thing that is your salvation. That's his solution. And what Jesus is reminding us in this story by, by bringing in here to Nicodemus, he's saying that's precisely what God has done with his own son. And the idea is this. We are like those Israelites in the wilderness. And we are perishing because we have been infected with a venom. And that venom is called sin. And sin is, is a part of us. And it, it courses through our lives. And it's fatal. It's terminal. Every time. It's, it's all the stuff 
in us, right? The, the pride, the greed, the bitterness, the lust, um, the self-righteousness, right? All, all, the, all the things that are in us, it is, it is a part of us, and we don't have a cure, meaning our situation is desperate. So when you read John 3.16, for God so loved the world, Jesus gave his son, you, you got to remember, Jesus isn't coming to like a neutral world. It's not like, hey, the world's going along great. And Jesus is like, well, here's another option that you could try. Try me. Right? That's not the context of John 3.16. The context is the world is perishing. Sin has infected this place, and the ship is going down. Right? The house is on fire, and I have come to rescue people who are perishing. And here's how this works. God gave his son just as Moses brought the snake. And so the Son of God is lifted up on a stake right on the cross. And essentially what happens is God takes the thing that's killing us, sin, and he lays it on his Son on the cross. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So the venom is given to Christ on the cross, and he pays the penalty for our sins so that through Looking to him, through faith in him, we have the antidote. <laughs> we have forgiveness. We have the chance of being cured, of being healed of this terminal sickness that we have called sin. We can look to him and believe and experience forgiveness. Again, old hat to many of us, I would imagine. But I want to invite you to think in this season... Where do you need to hear the good news of the cross of Christ? And maybe a strange way to, say, to ask you that question would be to say this. Where do you still experience the venom of sin coursing through your life? And think about it right now. Like, where do you experience your own sin and brokenness? Maybe especially in this season. Maybe there's particular forms that it tends to take. Where is it? Again, is it is a temptation towards fear, bitterness, greed, lust, addiction, a chronic need to try to control things? What are you aware of in this season? And I just want to remind you of, of two truths. One is, whatever that is in you, it's deadlier than you think. <laughs> it's terminal. It, it will, you will perish in that sin. And um, you don't have the antidote within yourself. So stop trying to fix yourself. Try, stop trying to give yourself the cure that you don't have. Here's the good news. God has provided the cure. It is forgiveness through the death of his son. All that stuff in you has been laid on Jesus, and, and he has paid the penalty for it all so that you can go through the holidays and you can go through your life without condemnation. So where, all that to say, do you need to turn to Christ and believe this morning? Where do you need to trust him with your own stuff? And the, and the hard thing is, I think, our, by our stuff, those are places of shame. Those are places of, of embarrassment and, and guilt. Those, aren't, those don't tend to be places that we want to just open up, right? We want to cover those and hide those. And yet those are precisely, this my point being, those are precisely the places where Emmanuel wants to meet you in this holiday season, right? He knows our stuff. He's come for our stuff. I, I was thinking this week, Jesus tells a story. He says, I have not come for the sick. I mean, I, I have come for the sick. I've not come for the healthy. 
right? Gotcha. Um, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I'm a, I'm a doctor, Jesus says. Doctors hang out with sick people. That's what we're here for. Right? I didn't come for healthy people or people who think they are healthy is what he means by that. I've come for the sick. This is why I came. And so he knows. He knows our sicknesses. He, he knows the stuff. And so I want to invite you to consider where do you need to, to bring that stuff to him in the season so that he can heal you. He can remind you of the forgiveness that we have, where he can say, turn to me again and be saved, be forgiven. I, I get it. I came for people just like that. Right? Whoever believes in him will not perish. All right. Fourth and final phrase. I love this. But have eternal life. Here's our last image from Doré. Now, it's interesting. Um, Eternal life in John's gospel is certainly a quantity of life, right? It is forever life, life, everlasting life that goes on and on and on. That is eternal life. But if you read John's gospel and all of his writings, it's clear that eternal life is also not just a quantity of life, but a quality of life. And it's something that actually can begin now, not when we die. Let me read to you John 5. Whoever believes in me, this is Jesus, has eternal life. It doesn't say will have, but has eternal life. They have passed from death to life. John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life. What is it? That they may know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Okay? He's talking about a life, a quality of life that begins now and goes on forever. And in this passage, in John 3, we get a glimpse of what this eternal life looks like in this conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus' comment about being born again. Okay, another just cliche, born-again Christian, right? But he's getting at this new life that we can have even now that starts now and goes on forever. So if you would, go back to verse 3 for a second. This is where we'll end with this, this idea of eternal life. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You have to have this new kind of eternal life. And when Nicodemus asks about this, Jesus clarifies what he means by being born again in verse 5. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. So by eternal life, I mean being, by being born again. And by being born again, what I mean by that is being born of water and the spirit. So what does it mean to be born of water and spirit. Well, Jesus is echoing Ezekiel 36, which is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, where Ezekiel prophesies about this thing that God is going to do in his people, and it is water and spirit. Let me read it to you. This is Ezekiel 36. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Here's the water. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. There's spirit. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is what it means to be born again. It means to be born of water and spirit. Let me go back to this water. What does it mean to be born of water? <laughs> it means to be washed clean. 
It means to be, to be purified, to be given an utterly fresh start, to be cleansed of all the guilt and shame that we can live with, but not just the guilt and shame, but actually cleanse from our impurities and from our idolatries, to have our hearts made clean from all their brokenness, washed clean, forgiven, all the layers of guilt and compulsion and addiction, all of this stuff washed clean, okay? That's what eternal life feels like and looks like that can begin even now. Born of water and born of the Spirit. I will put my Spirit. So God is talking about His own personal, powerful presence dwelling in our hearts, which means His power, His grace, His love, His joy, His freedom, all of that living inside of us. Jesus says in John, my Father and I will come and we'll make our home in you. It means your heart, your inner being, being made the home of the eternal God and all that that means. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I was thinking this week, my heart is not always a fun place to be. And what's so hard is I'm always there. Like, I, I'm, wherever I go physically, I'm always in that place, right? My inner being or my mind. And it's not always a fun place to be. And I'll bet yours isn't as well. But this is the promise of being born of water and spirit. It's God's own presence making his home in your inner being. And as that happens more and more, it will be an amazing place to live, full of joy. Love, peace, freedom, hope, grace, right? This is what it, this is what it will be. <sighs> hearts of flesh, one of my favorite images in all the scriptures. I'm going to remove that heart of stone, that hardness, and that, that, oh, that brokenness, and I'm going to give you these hearts of flesh that are soft and receptive to me, that beat the way they were always meant to beat. Water in spirit. That is a picture of eternal life. I will never forget reading Ezekiel 36. I was 20 years old. I was in Europe on a Europe semester, and this was the season of my life where God called me back to himself. I had a couple two-year series season of just doubt and questions, and God just drew me back in some pretty powerful ways. And one of those was, I can remember right where I was. I was in Switzerland. I was in a little kind of hostile place living there. Um, not hostile, but, you know, hostile. It was fine. And um, it came out wrong. It was a hostile place in Switzerland. Switzerland's never hostile, I don't think. Um, and I, I was... I was feeling the weight of my guilt, uh, my sin, my loss, just my questions. And I came to this passage, and I feel like God just, like, just did this. Um, I'm going to wash you clean, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to remove what's going on in you right now. I'm going to give you this new heart that beats for me, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to start moving you to be able to walk in the ways that I want you to walk. And it was, I'll never forget, it was such a profound moment. And what was so profound was it was such a promise that had really nothing to do with me. God's like, I'm doing this. This isn't your work. I'm doing this. And that's the gospel. This is God's work from start to finish. Eternal life. It begins now, and it goes on forever and ever.
So I invite you in that last one just to consider this picture of water and spirit. Where do you need to experience eternal life now? Where do you need to experience this, this forgiveness, this freedom? Where do you need to experience the gift of Emmanuel, like actually dwelling within you, coming and making his home in you? What would it look like for you to begin to experience this life? Many of us are. What would it look like to experience it more fully? All right, so there it is. Nothing new. It's the same old wonderful good news. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And again, like I said, right, this is all God's work. God's the one who loves the world. God's the one who gave his son. God's the one who can give us eternal life. There is that word belief there, belief. And that's the invitation of, of Jesus in John 3.16. I've, I've done it. My father and I have done everything. So belief, which is simply to say, just surrender to what we've done. <laughs> belief isn't even a work. It's an anti-work. Trust me. Surrender to me. Right? Trust that I, I've done everything that needs to be done. And so I guess that would be my invitation for you as we move into this final week of the Advent season. Where do you need to trust again? Where is the invitation to move away from fear or to move away from control or to move away from pride and to move towards surrender and trust so that we might experience God with us in some fresh and beautiful way this year. Let me pray for us and just invite us into that place of trust. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, corporately just thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the gift of your love, your grace, and your gift of eternal life. And we want to offer ourselves to you. We, 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 wanna, we want to, wherever our hands are kind of clenched and held tightly to our lives, wherever fear and anxiety are, uh, have their way, we want to just let go of all that. We want to loosen our grip and just say, Lord, Lord we're yours. We, we want to we experience your grace again, your cleansing where we need cleansing, your spirit where we need your spirit to bring whatever we need your spirit to bring. And so we say, Lord, we believe you. We trust in you. Move in our hearts and minds, Lord. Give us a fresh gift this Christmas season, Lord, we pray. And, and, and help us to be loving and generous with one another in this season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.